You're listening to Radio BCC and this is the Six O'Clock Swill. Welcome to the Six O'Clock Squill with Simon Collins, Tim Blair and me, Mick Cater. Three brave members of the resistance crouch beneath the railway bridge, stick a dynamite in hand, just waiting to blow up the Woke <laughs> Express as it comes thundering through. Tim, I uh, don't want to get cancelled or anything like that, Perhaps so perhaps you better bring us up to date with the latest language rules from Woke Central. Yes, these. Um, take careful note, everybody, because the... the as usual, the rules have changed. Uh, out, of, out of Colorado, um, the Sexual Offenders Board there, Sexual Offenders Management Board, have now decided that the phrase sexual offenders is itself offensive. They find it stigmatises uh, sexual offenders. And, uh, as it should. I mean, are we against stigmatising sexual offenders or is that now not allowed? I would have thought that it kind of goes with the territory. So... We're now in a situation where the Colorado Sexual Offenders Management Board, note the title, is not going to use the, the phrase sexual offenders, even though it's what it's in their own title as well. And they had a debate about it and they, they workshopped a few replacement terms. One of them was simply client. <laughs> not, not, not making this up. Uh, they eventually settled upon, I think, oh yes, Adults who commit sexual offences. Well, it's accurate. It's a bit clumsy. It's a clumsy way of saying sexual offenders, right? Or even easier, what about plain old rapists? What about perverts? Perverts, or you know. <laughs> but you, this is this is this guys. This is not just this is not just a woke phenomenon, though. It's very significant. This is coming from America. It's it's, it's a long tradition in America taking. Um, inherently negative terms and finding a way to make them sound acceptable. I mean, the, 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 one of the earliest ones was, um, you know, what we would call a second-hand car. Yes. They would refer to it as experienced. Oh, experienced really? vehicle. Or pre-used yeah. was another... Pre-used. Another, another no, pre, no, pre-loved. 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 Yes. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to your, your sexual offenders thing, I mean... There, there's yet more examples. What about consent challenge? The consent challenged or... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, the voluntary pain inflictors. I don't know. There's, there's a number, but they've settled upon uh, adults who commit sexual offences. But we also have out of San Diego. Now, San Diego in California, one of those areas where they went pretty big with defund the police, they reduced their police budgets. As a consequence, police uh, resources are massively stretched. They've, they've now decided they won't aggressively prosecute or go after people for stealing less than $900 worth of goods. And they've ended crime, right? The crime figures have gone right down. No. Oddly, no. <laughs> you wouldn't. You would not believe this, but it's actually gone up. Extraordinary. Who'd have thought it? I know, right? <laughs> so um, we're now having. You can see it in a million places online of people in gangs just rampaging through, you know, department stores, smashing open jewellery containers or whatever, just grabbing up to the you know nine hundred dollar limit, just grabbing stuff and bolting. And you, I think worldwide you describe these sort of people as looters, right? Mm. Oh, no. Looters is racist because it generally refers to inner-city people of a certain ethnic mm. background. So, Does that mean that if 
that if if a white person goes in, in into a store and 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 walks out with goods up to that value, would they, could they be accused of cultural appropriation? Oh, good lord! Yeah, you've you've raised another issue there. <laughs> anyway, the San Diego police have decided this hasn't been imposed on them. They've now decided because of it's so racially sensitive that looting will now be described as organised robbery. <laughs> See, it's better because it's organised. Now, these people, have, they're, they're being mocked online, but they've really faced no serious repercussions, unlike a certain Virginia academic. Um, she, he is one of the um, pronoun people. I think she goes by they or Z or something. Z. She wanted to change... Changed use. Of, she she was unhappy with the word pedophile because it stigmatised pedophiles. She wanted that term to be replaced with the phrase "minor attracted people," <laughs> which you know she's she's been flicked by the university, even for a, a US university that was pushing it too far. But and that's half the population of the Hunter Valley, right there. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, no, 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 that's the other thing. I, I'm now, let, let, let's roll with this replacement phrase game. I say that people who accuse us of being fossil fools or climate deniers, oh no, we're mining attracted people. Yes. <laughs> Excav- excavation attracted people. Yes, uh, yes. Uh. So if they're going to play these games, we'll just throw it right back at them. If, if, if you have a certain fetish for birds, you could be a miner. Attractive person. No one's attracted to miners. Those things are garbage birds. Oh, they're cute. They're very cute. Are they? They, they taste <laughs> Well, I accept that. No, technically, they're Indian miners, but if you call them Indian miners, then we're getting into the whole Adani thing again, and it's, it's full of problems. <laughs> I always thought that's what the protests were about. You're telling me it's about a mine? I thought they were all up there angry about stupid birds. <laughs> Any more on the language front? Because I've got something really... Really horrible. No, I got, I got, I got nothing else. But uh, probably by the end of the hour, I will because it's evolving very quickly in this space, as they say. <laughs> in this space. So Joseph Curl reports on the Daily Wire: the Salvation Army has gone woke. I must let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. I think this is the American Salvation Army. I, I mean, I, most of the Salvation Army guys I know over here. Uh, They've got a long, long way to go before they can go woke. I know a couple of woke ones. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of them. A couple of rogue wokies. Isn't just being a member of the Salvation Army so unwoke you're irredeemable? I don't know. But anyway, this is what they're saying. This is March through the institution stuff, though, isn't it? Anyway, go on, Nick. Well, they're marching through the Salvation Army in, in the US. The charity is asking its white donors to do more than just drop some coins into the kettle when they go shopping this holiday season. Leaders of the army want whites to apologise for being racist. Quote, The desire is that salvationists achieve the following, the army says on an online resource titled Let's Talk About Racism, listing several goals including lament, repent and apologise for biases or racist ideologies held and actions committed. The resource claims Christianity is inherently racist strange, I thought, majority of Christians in the world today are not white, uh, to repent yes. and offer a sincere apology to blacks for being antagonistic to black people or the culture, values and interests of the black community. I, I, I thought the Salvation Army was there to help the poor and I think the poor would rather have the cash, don't you? 
<laughs> well, I mean, listen, this is a great example of, you know, that they are an army and, and then perhaps they model themselves on the world's biggest or best funded army, the, the US Army, which is run by a man, uh, yeah. a, a, an officer, Millie, who, who, who says his main object, his main concerns are not, uh, not, not, not vanquishing uh, evil foes, but uh, de dealing with white, with, with, uh, with, with diversity and white rage. Uh, you know, so if the U.S. Army is not Im immune to this, the woke virus, why should the Salvation Army be? I've, uh, I've rarely experienced white rage, but I'm feeling it growing by the day with all this stupid stuff. You know, um, <laughs> I commonly, whenever, you know, put yourself in a salvo costume and wave a can at me and I'm giving you some money almost 100% of the time if I've got some. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I might be disinclined to do so if uh, if the local salvos take after their US model. I think they need to distance themselves from this entirely. I think they need to split, like the real IRA kind of situation. <laughs> the real Salvation Army. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not quite. Let's hope not quite in the manner of the real IRA. The real IRA, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, not not quite so many kneecappings, you know. Like 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 every well established. <laughs> long respected institution if they want to remain established and respected stick to their bloody knitting <laughs> absolutely absolutely what what so if, if the salvation army has been marched through um i thought they did the marching but apparently they've been marched through it's another mm. march through institution what next what do you think i mean if, if the salvation army cannot resist it mm. you know, i mean what what can I mean, well, look who else has fallen this week. The Australian cricket captaincy's gone work. You're kidding. No. We've now got Pat Cummins been appointed captain on uh, on Friday. He takes over from um, takes over from the unfortunate Tim Payne, the, the captain who came and went, so to speak. The <laughs> and Tim Payne, Tim Payne, the new body line scandal, sexting <laughs> right, a picture yes. of his private parts to a, yes. a woman who apparently was consenting to have them sexed. Consenting up to, a, up, to a, up to a point, apparently, and, uh, and was uh, scandalised thereafter. But Cummins is a big talker on issues like climate change, and he's a believer in Bruce Pascoe, which not even Pascoe's own university is these days. A few weeks ago... Melbourne University, on, in its online description of uh, Pascoe and his role at the university, um, they stopped referring to him by any kind of identifying Aboriginality or, or, or linking him to Indigenous uh, ancestry. So Cummins is out on his own there, but um, it's going to be interesting. Cummins is a big one. He's to, he, he's, he spoke a month ago in an interview at the Oz, I think, where he was talking about you know, cricket's got a lot to look at in terms of climate change because you know, we, we tr travel so much in jets and we play games under these enormous lights and uh, we water all these fields and uh, mm -hmm. you know, we've got a huge carbon footprint. Well, one way to reduce that is to stop touring overseas, stop playing games under lights and, uh, there, and of course, get about one third of the current pay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how that works out with your, with your playing squad there, Pat. You've got a bit of work to do, mate, convincing them. Mm. The whole thing about this is that I want a cricket captain that can win the ashes, not not yes. win a sainthood. You know, we don't elect them. We don't want them to win sainthoods. We don't want them. Mother Teresa would be the shocking captain. Let me say that. Ah, ah, ah. You raise another interesting point. Peter Fitzsimons, not 
Peter Fitzsimons, everyone's favourite um, pirate impersonating punctuation challenge pinhead, he decided that probably wasn't going far enough to have Pat Cummins, you know, old woke Pat, come into the captaincy. He would rather prefer another player to be elevated to the role of the uh, captain of the Australian men's team, Elise Perry. <laughs> I kid you not. I, who's, who's Elise Perry? I don't know. Captain of the Australian women's team. Of course. Now, how, how silly. I, I wonder if you, if the Australian Cricket Board or Cricket Australia, as it's now called, if they followed Fitzsimons' directive and they did install her as the captain of the men's team, would they also share in the eventual mans- manslaughter charges after she was you know, chopped to bits by some sort of vicious 160-kilometre-hour fastballer in the men's comp? Because it it would be slightly an unfair competition, I think. It, it's ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, does he does he propose? I mean, he of course was a a member of the Wallabies. Uh, I don't know. He, he, oh, they've been know. woke for ages now. Simon can tell you all about that. They? I mean, do we, ha- do we have women playing in the Wallabies? I sometimes, th- I don't follow it closely, but when I look at the results, I sometimes think we might. I don't know. Oh, you're cancelled, man. You're cancelled for that. <laughs> as far as I know, as far as I, I can't remember Wallabies taking the knee. I may have got it wrong, but I can't remember them taking the knee. But, but I've taken a few I, knees I, to the head over the years, especially Fitz. A little bit of woke's not too bad. I'm glad to say it's good that they've incorporated um, some indigenous uh, graphics on their, on, their, on their kit. But again, if they could stick to their knitting and win some, war, win some games, that would be great. That would be a start. Mm. You know, score some tries, then go woke. Yeah. Never go woke. No, 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 no. Better to die with honour uh, than, uh, <laughs> than be a woke winner even. I think Simon points, Simon's point is good. If you're going to go woke, do it in your own time. Yes. Not in that, yeah. that yeah. brief hour and a half you're allotted to win the game. You've got a lot of time besides that, don't you? You can always, you know, woke your head off on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you indeed. don't have to do indeed. it while you're actually running around with a ball in your hand trying to avoid, you know, some, someone who wants to smash you. One of the problems with rugby union, of course, is that the sponsorships are—they're always the big corporates who are themselves uh, terrified of not being woke. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's—I suspect it's not quite the same as true of you know, um, like rugby league, for example, uh, where there's a bit more kind of common sense applied, you know, and a bit more sticking to knit, stick, sticking to knitting. Yeah. But cer- certainly. You know, rugby union, international rugby union, is it's 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 uh, irredeemably woke now. I'm afraid because all those all the big corporate global sponsors are um, terrified of not towing that line. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Can't, can't I mean you, even if you've got sponsorship from a, like a mining giant, they're all woken it up these days. But uh, you know, maybe maybe there's a sort of a market gap for someone to seek sponsorship from I don't know an AR15 manufacturer or. Uh, you know, some sort of Remington or Glock might have a spare bit of corporate cash to throw you away. Why don't the Newcastle Knights get sponsored by Adani Mines? That would be good. <laughs> yes, exactly. That'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? Well, we might just wrap up this woke segment of the program, uh, unless mm-hmm. anybody's got any, anything else to add to it. Yeah, I might just read from my new favourite cartoonist, Michael Lunig. He's 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 unwoked. It's 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 impressive. He has. So he's got a fair. Uh, the fairy godmother finding Cinderella alone in the kitchen reading a book. Mm. Fairy godmother says, Cinderella, why are you not at the woke ball tonight? 
She replies, well, government regulations forbid my entry and the woke people have cancelled me. Mm. I could change that, says the fairy godmother. She says, no, thanks, I'm perfectly happy at home reading my book. The woke ball is not my cup of tea. Too much glitter, too clever by half, and I've heard the mood is self-righteous and vindictive. Good old Michael is coming into his own. He's uh, discovered the... Well, it's good because he's, he's got nothing to lose now, has he? He's, he's, he can speak his mind, finally. <laughs> Well, I still think he's got like a minor role um, at the at the age, but it's not. Um, he's lost half his. No, those minors again. Those damn <laughs> minors. He's he's minor adjacent. Uh, he he's 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 not he's not a classically trained artist. He learnt it himself. He he used to work in a meatworks apparently, but he does do a mean Dan Andrews, a sort of little black pencil <laughs> huddled scribble. It's very good. So <laughs> shout out to Michael. Great uh, cartoons recently. We should get him on the show. We should, Dale. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that. Simon, um, advertising news. Um, four page advertisement in the Australian this week for the United Australian Party. That's uh, Clive Palmer's uh, party with a, a large picture of a very handsome man called Craig Kelly. Craig Kelly, apparently, according to this advertisement, is going to be our next Prime Minister. Well, that will mean, of course, the United Australia Party winning at least 76 seats in the lower house, and at the present they have no members in the lower house. Uh, it does seem a big ask. Explain this kind of advertising to me. Is it, it you just sort of overwhelming people by the boldness of your claim, or what's going on? Well, I think I think obviously they you know they're casting their minds back to 2019 when our current prime minister greeted the results with the statement, "It's a miracle," and uh, mm-hmm. they they think well maybe maybe that sets a precedent. Uh, maybe they get another one here. Look, Craig Kelly is a smart bloke, and whatever you think of Clive Farmer, I don't think either of them uh, believe for a second that um, Craig will be our next prime minister. But what's interesting about this campaign? There's lots of things about it. Is I call it. I call it, when I, I remember uh, when I turned opened the same issue of the Australian last week, and I saw that particular full page ad. The words that jumped in my mind was the yellow peril. So I'm not recommending a return to the white Australia policy. I'm just saying that I remember the last time we were this explosion of yellow uh, came across all our newspapers and and TV screens in 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 2019. It was a record-breaking $60 million advertising splurge. And yellow was the the predominant colour in those ads. Is that right, Simon? Yeah. yeah. Yellow is the hue of choice of uh, of, of, uh, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party, which is very interesting because it's actually not a colour that is is used by many advertisers. And I'm sure that in 2019 and again now, the people at the marketing department of the Commonwealth Bank are going, oh, no, here we go again. Because up till... (laughs) Up till Mr. Palmer's arrival on the scene, they were the only major advertiser that deployed the the colour yellow. And and I know from my experience that just using an unusual colour can actually conflate different brands. So they're probably hoping that no one thinks it's anything to do with the Commonwealth Bank. The point was last time, even though his $60 million ad splurge Mm. didn't even deliver a single seat in that 2019 election, what it did allow Palmer to say in the post-election interviews was, you know what, without the uh, the votes that we pulled away from the Labour Party, Scott Morrison would not be in government now. Hmm. So they owe it. To, the coalition owes it to us. Now, I my my spies tell me that his war chest this time around is even bigger 
So you may think there's nothing very uh, enticing about a full page ad of a literally a, a life size close up of, of Mr. Kelly's head. Uh, it's not very persuasive. And the, and the line which accompanies it, which is the strap line for their campaign, by the way, is we can we can never trust the liberals, Labour or Greens again. So they they now he's now gone on a trust thing. Well, I never trusted the Greens. Did you? No, Tim. Did you, when he says you should never trust the Greens again, I never trusted them in the first place. Yeah, I, I, your point is well taken. The, the very fact that they've got uh, pictures of Craig Kelly rather than Clive Palmer suggests that they've they've done some research into this. Well, it was only a, it's only one one broadsheet page. It's pretty hard to fit Clive on it. So maybe that was the the, the reasoning. <laughs> I, I ran into Clive one one night at the Hyatt. Ah, you all right? I hope you, I hope you were in a large vehicle. It was uh, at the Hyatt in Canberra, and uh, I was just sitting there with a, a visitor from the United States, and there across the bar I saw uh, Matthias Corman, our former finance minister. I said, hi, hi, Matthias, how are you? And I went over to have a chat to him. I am very good. I'm very good. And there he was with Clive Palmer. So <laughs> I never run into Clive in the... In person, but you remember, I, I'd only known him from Bill Leake's cartoons. You know, <laughs> Bill would do him with this great vast figure taking up the whole frame of the cartoon with a, and you, and you recognise it as though it was like a police sketch, yeah, with a full Chinese meal down his shirt. <laughs> you know, you could actually pick it out. Oh, he's there's basic... a number one. There's a number two. Oh, there's a sweetness. How? Oh, he's got. He went with the black bean. That's surprising. Celeste Patterson, basically. Yeah, exactly, and, and that was yeah. exactly what. Clive looked like, and I had to ring poor uh, Bill the next day and say, "Bill, your cartoons—they're just—you're just, just not—they're they're looking far too realistic. You've got to exaggerate them even more." You know, <laughs> there was more Chinese dinner down his shirt than I even thought was possible. Yeah, Make generally you buy you buy shirts for size and cut and colour, not calories. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, look, we've got uh, Judith Sloan coming up to talk about the unfashionable business of economics and the threat of inflation, uh, apparently, which is uh, around the corner. Bad Judith. Let's explain that at the moment. Delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Bad Judith Sloan. <laughs> Judith Sloan, economist uh, and a columnist with the Australian, where she's uh, known as Good Judith, and columnist with the Spectator, where, at least according to the editor, she's known as Bad Judith. Whichever we have, Judith, welcome. Thank you very much, Nick. I, by my kickoff, I was just saying beforehand that you know we we always like to young and contemporary here and I, I took some advice you do yes i i do uh, not just advice from my wife but this was advice from a smart young woman of i suppose the uh, sort of millennial generation about what sort of things we should talk about and i said well we've really got to get have a conversation about inflation and you could see her roll her eyes and say mm, no i don't think so so i'm determined to have one <laughs> One that she'll actually recognise, I hope, <laughs> if you're listening, Laura, that inflation matters to everybody. We haven't had inflation for a long time, have we, Judith? I mean, I can't even remember when interest rates last went up, but perhaps my memory's short. 
we haven't really had significant inflation since the mid-1990s, actually, so it's a very long time ago, and that's right. So uh, a whole lot of people weren't even born when it was an issue. Um, but it really is a big issue now, and um, in uh, the US in particular, you know, the rate of inflation has gone over 6%, mm. um, and it's also higher in Canada, it's higher in the, the US, in Germany. New Zealand, I think, running at 5%. New Zealand, mm. very interesting. And also they've tightened monetary policy twice now. What do, you, what do they use in New Zealand as the kind of measure <laughs> of, uh, of, of unit cost? Like in Australia, we always talk about a litre of milk. Do they do like a pair of jandals? <laughs> you know, the average family can't equip itself with jandals. <laughs> It's or possibly it's something stupid like that. Is it sheep? <laughs> It'd be sheep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they are the Saudi a sheep they, cost. They are the Saudi Arabia of milk, of course. Uh, but I gather it's going up even there. But um, look, I, I guess the yeah. point is we've got to go. I thought you were going to make an important point, Tim. But of course not. I'm Tim. No. <laughs> Which is how you how you measure inflation is very important. And well, yeah, so you, you had well, seriously though. You do have your McDonald's index, which is a global measure. Yes, yes, yes. The, your Big Mac index. Yes, no, that's quite important. That tends to be used to see whether the exchange rates are the kind of appropriate ones. But um, so we don't have house prices basically in mm. our inflation measure, and that is an important point mm. uh, because obviously the rate of increase of house prices has been phenomenal, like over 20%. But Absolutely. that is not included. Uh, and rental? Um, is, is rental in there? Yeah, rent, rents are in, and there's something weird called imputed rents. Um, but, look, there's a lot at stake. Um, there's a lot at stake, particularly for our Reserve Bank, because they, I think, have made some really serious mistakes by, for example, saying they're not going to change interest rates till 2024. Mm -hmm. And I guess people believe them and they may, they may end up actually getting caught out uh, by that prediction. So, and a lot, I think, also rests on this for the government as well because inflation and higher interest rates are not a good combination. Judith, a lot of people in the US who have... Um backed Joe Biden during the 2020 campaign and are now uh, tied to him, have suddenly discovered that inflation is a good thing. And they're saying <laughs> that it's not necessarily bad. Is, can there be cases where inflation is a good thing? Uh, a little bit of inflation can be okay, particularly if you're getting kind of uh, changes to relative prices, which telling people where to invest and where to consume. It's where you've got um, rapidly rising overall rates of inflation that it's a problem. But, I mean, I think when you talk about Joe Biden, there's quite a lot of what economists call buyer's remorse going on there too. Um, so <laughs> just, just a little bit, yeah. Just a little bit. Except, so. that, except it's not being expressed as remorse, is it? It's being expressed by, by just blanket denial from what I can tell. What's your view of that? Well, you know, by the mainstream press maybe, but I think there's yeah. a lot of anger out there. And, and, of course, one of the things that matters a lot over there is, you know, what they call gas prices, what we call, you know, petrol prices, um, and they're really skyrocketing. And, you know, um, notwithstanding all the hoopla about electric vehicles, most people still drive gas guzzlers in America, and so that's a really big political issue. So Joe Biden, I mean, I think incredibly stupidly, decided to release a bit of the National Petroleum Reserve's 
in yes. the US and a number of mm. other countries. What he thought he was doing, who knows, because it's only like a few days' supply that was being released. Yeah, and, it's you like know, 50 Sa- million barrels or something like and that. And the Saudis and the other OPEC countries will say, oh, okay, well, we might just have to reduce the supply in response. Um, Nobody... But that shows you, I think, how desperate he is to make sure that pet- what we call petrol prices don't continue to rise. Nobody's immune to it, are they? I mean, I see um, $2 a litre here. You know, today, two dollars. It's not hard to pay two dollars a liter if you want. You know, ninety-eight um, fuel, which is about the only one that's not going to rot your engine. So, you know, <laughs> this is going to become a real issue here, isn't it? We're running up. We've got an election year next year, and two-dollar petrol doesn't play well, particularly in some of the outer suburbs and in the and in the country where elections are won and lost. I mean, they say petrol prices. Uh... Certainly in the past, like in John Howard's era, they were regarded as a, um, you know, a very adverse political occurrence for petrol prices to rise steeply. Mm. Are they still? I think they probably are. But, you know, it's an interesting point going back to the whole inflation debate is that, you know, I think we should ask the question is, has our Reserve Bank made a, a serious error in terms of its policy setting? Yeah. Because, I mean... By running emergency interest rates for this long, for embarking on what we call quantitative easing, really the effect has been to drive up house prices and asset prices and really, as a result of that, increase inequality, particularly in terms of wealth, quite dramatically. Now, mm. they're really they're lefties there in the Reserve Bank, if the truth be known. <laughs> but this is a very funny outcome, you know. Well, and, I mean... You know, I, I, and, and in some ways I kind of love Steve Granville, who used to be the Deputy Governor of the uh, Reserve Bank and now doesn't seem to... I mean, he's become a bit like me, you know, he's bad Stephen, who says, well, <laughs> the, the central banks are now basically driven by Wall Street and, and all the stock exchanges and indeed the mortgage holders because they're so fearful that in the event of them increasing interest rates, tightening monetary policy then, you know, equity markets could fall substantially, house prices could fall substantially, and they don't like the consequences of that. So, you know, they keep it going. When do we go, Judith? When do banks start to become banks again? They've had a a very cushy (laughs) run for 10, 15 years. They've been allowed to be indulgent on issues like climate and coal investment and so on. But uh, when it comes down to it, and money is once again the main driving force behind, uh, behind banking... When did they discard? At what point would they discard all of that social justice nonsense and start going back to their core activities of uh, growing cash? Well, you know, sadly, I mean, we've basically got a banking oligopoly here. So, mm. I mean, and I think your interpretation is not just the banks. You know, the more oh hell company, yeah, you're right. Yeah, the more the companies indulge, you know, the ESG, which is like one very exciting word now: the environment, social, and governance. Um, God, criteria. I feel like killing myself now. Yeah, That's terrible. Yeah. Corporate, what's it? Corporate responsibility. That was another one. You know, the sort of the whole slew of woke um, epithets. Then the more you think, well, hang on a minute. There's a lot of margin in this business. You know. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not operating at the sort of absolute cusp of profit. You know. Yeah. You know the difference between profit and loss here. If you can afford an HR department, you're making too much money. 
Well, and if you can afford all sorts of jobs, frankly, you know. Mm. I mean, you know, they'll probably have a whole department of diversity officers, those banks. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We forget this stuff costs money, doesn't it? I mean, it actually adds to our bill. And, and then the other thing, of course, we're all suffering from around the subject of banking is is the effects of the Banking Royal Commission. You know, it's now, it, it takes... It, 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 it wasn't that, it was actually a lot of fun. I didn't expect it to be that revelatory, but... People were dropping like flies every day during that. It was terrific. Yeah, fun. Uh, yeah but because what they, the government does then is overreact. So I don't know if you've tried to get a credit card recently. It's It takes about three years and 54 <laughs> million forms before they finally say, yes, we'll give you one. And that's, it, 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 you know, we can laugh at it, but, it makes life do, but it's expense, yeah. isn't it? It just adds to the cost of the, the banking, doesn't it, Judith? There is a cost to regulation. Well, you know, I think the truth of the matter is that the instinct to uh, resist the Banking Royal Commission was right, and when they did agree to it, it was actually it was a, a Royal Commission into banking misconduct. So you actually we never got any view of how important the misconduct was because they didn't look at conduct, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, look, oh, that, that's a that's a very good point, Judith. No, nobody went to jail at the end of it anyway. No, no, no. So it had a few gotcha moments, um, you know. So it got Ken Henry. So it wasn't all bad. Um, but... <laughs> bad Judith is off the hook today. He can spend time tending the wombats now, which is his other passion. <laughs> um, yeah, he he just he he just wasn't getting with the program. You know, you have to be obsequious to the commissioner, otherwise they'll do you over. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the government did introduce a few changes, but then, of course, you know, the pandemic uh, reached our shores and most of them got got uh, junked. So that mm. responsible banking lending, which was sort of based on the view that people are complete idiots when they take out loans, um, mm. well, that got junked. Um, mm. I mean, it, 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 I mean, my friend, I have, you know, which, okay, it's a big omission, you know, friends who work in the banking sector. <gasps> yeah. Some quite a lot have left, but some would mm. say it's just bureaucratized the place dramatically. Good people, but yeah. you know the amount of regulatory intrusion is ridiculous. So, as you say, you know, try and get a credit card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the the pandemic, or more more importantly, probably the response to it, the economic response. This idea, which. Um, you know, governments did to various degrees of throwing money at it in the expectation this was just like an ordinary recession. Um, w- turned out to be a bit of a mistake, didn't it? Because it wasn't a shortage of money. It was a shortage of goods or opportunity to buy goods, which was a real problem. And uh, I think a lot of money went into people's paying off people's houses and paying down household debt, didn't it? Mm, oh, well, there were um, beach houses that are called JobKeeper. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's also the name of my yacht. <laughs> yes. Terrific, yeah. No, no. look, I'm incredibly critical of it um, for a variety of reasons. And as you say, this was not a demand efficiency recession. This was a supply problem. This was a supply problem because the governments had mandated that a, a whole parts of the economy be shut down, right? So mm. the idea that you would stimulate demand in the context of this, these supply restrictions, it was a really, really stupid thing to do, in my opinion. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's a real worry for, you know, the coalition, which is sort of supposed to be centre-right. You know, you mm. look at what's happened with government debt, it's absolutely extraordinary, you know. Yeah. 
we're going to be hitting, you know, a trillion dollars of net debt quite soon. You know, they came in with about 200 million. You know, the increase in government spending. And I mean, basically, you know, I mean, the defence of JobKeeper was extraordinary. That Oh, well, you know, yes, we didn't quite get the controls right, but, you know, it was good that we got the money out quickly. Well, hang on a minute. It's such a short-term point of view because, you know, the hmm. consequences of building up that debt are very long-term. And so I, I, I feel that, you know, going into the election, this government is going to be... It's going to be a difficult argument to prosecute the idea that they're good economic and fiscal managers in terms of what's been done in the last two years, frankly. It's an unusual way to sort of defend trillion dollars of debt with the line, you know, paraphrasing. Uh, oh, it's a thought that counts. <laughs> but <laughs> it's also, but, but I do. think it's sort of worse than that. It's also, I don't think people realise the sort of moral aspect of fiscal rectitude, which was basically it forces governments to line spending up and only spend scarce taxpayers' money on the worthiest of causes. Now, once yes. that discipline goes, I think immorality then flourishes. I mean, I always wonder whether or not I should listen to Question Time. I kind of think, oh, my job. And then, you know, I, so I start <laughs> off and then and it, it, it works quite well because the one television we've got downstairs is, seems to have been stuck on Channel 2, so I do get it. Oh, sell it. <laughs> That's oh, broken. broken. Yeah, I can't channel um, too. But, you know, I was listening to Barnaby Joyce going on about, you know, all the spending in this particular electorate, you know, pork barrelling, really. Yeah. And, you know, he was going on, is this, this is what local members should do. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. You know, is this the kind of spending that really is um, high quality, you know, in, in, and leading to longer term benefits? So... Hmm. It, you know, I really think this is all, you know, mixed up with, um, you know, economics as a moral philosophy and, uh, you know, when they were good fiscal managers, good economic managers, I think they could make a claim for that. But now it's just, it's just like confetti. Isn't just our problem, is it, Judith? You can see this in the debate in the United States. Oh. They've got the Build Back Better program. I don't know, Tim will tell me how many mm. trillion, billion, squillion dollars it's costing, but, but the, the argument from the Biden camp is, well, we're going to build all this infrastructure and we will save money. How? Because we'll raise more in taxes. I, you know, this is just dangerous, uh, frightening illogic, isn't it, that shows just a fundamental ignorance of mm. economics. Is it just that they are ignorant of, you know, people just don't take the interest in economics they once did, or is it something else going on, something in the water? Oh, I mean, you know, frankly, thank God for the Wall Street Journal in this stuff, because yes. the, the <laughs> you won't get anything out of the rest of American mm. press. Um but, you know, I see Obama had a huge infrastructure spending program and mm -hmm. basically it's all just sort of, you know, pork barrelling and rorts and stuff. Don't get me wrong, I think particularly in America, there are a lot of infrastructure gaps. You know, I think there are literally bridges falling down and roads, yeah. you know, in need of serious repair and airports. And But, you know, if you look at um, the, I don't know how many trillions of dollars, and it's sort of over 10 years, but, you know, it's all... 
I mean, I kind of complain about Australia and spending, but in a way, America's worse because they have these sort of omnibus bills mm. and it's all full of lots of rubbish and tax credits and this and that. And so in the, the one, the most recent infrastructure bill, they, uh, this is something Trump did, which was well, uh, which was a good thing. So he stuck a $10,000 limit on the deduction people could claim for the taxes they spend at the state level, right? Mm. Um, yep. Okay, so in the infrastructure trillions of dollars bill, um, Biden is proposing to increase that to $80,000. Now, that basically is a subsidy to Californians, yeah. right? Mm. Rich Californians, because yes. they're the ones who are high, and New Yorkers too, by the way. So Democrats, you know. And then there are mm. all these other widow provisions like... Um, you know, it all has to be unionised labour and you can get a tax credit yep. for your electric vehicle, but only if it's manufactured by unionised labour and stuff. The sort of degree of intervention and silliness is incredible. Mm. Well, speaking of interventions and silliness, this is one of the more perverse uh, aspects of the pandemic and of both the Fed and the federal government's uh, big spending clumsiness. The most recent poll in Victoria, where you're sadly trapped... <laughs> had Labor at about 60%. One of the reasons for Labor's bizarre popularity down there is that economically they didn't get hurt as badly as they would have if they hadn't been protected by so much federal money. But the same federal government that's propped up Labor in Victoria is massively despised by Victorian voters (laughs) who are are lining up to belt them um, in probably, I think, the elections possibly next May. How weird is that? Look, I think you almost have to live here. No. To, no, but to understand what a great politician Dan Andrews is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is an incredibly clever politician, right? He knows absolutely how to press the buttons and, of course, is in the context of a very weak opposition. Yeah. Oh, you have one. <laughs> I've got to read the Herald Sun more closely. I wasn't aware that there, there was a I, I thought, I thought the, the thing is op- opposition had got it. done for drink driving. Or was, was there oh, more well, than one? Was there yeah, that was one? the entire opposition, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but they had an avenue, particularly in the last few months, to wave the Liberty flag. Yeah. Um, mm. Particularly because... That was to a degree what Berejiklian and Peretet have done. Now, I mean, I have reservations about the government in New South Wales, but they got that bit, I think. They got the fact that you had to balance liberty with, you know, health-based restrictions and that you had to move along as quickly as you possibly could to lift those restrictions. And it's interesting if you look at the current figures. I mean... You have to say the New South Wales way of doing it has proved to be much more successful. You know, Victoria's still got over a 1,000 cases. New South Wales down to about 200, you know. And they're they're just rolling along every day like that now. It's a a largely changed scenario. Um, Judith, you actually do have a a pro-liberty opposition group in Victoria, and I never thought I'd be saying this, but it's the membership of the CFMEU. (laughs) <laughs> Not entirely, but you have a point. <laughs> yes, they kind of like freedom a little bit more than the Liberal Party does, which is a very curious situation and one that I think only exists in Victoria or maybe in the northern Queensland as well. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. No, look, I think it's an interesting case, actually. I mean, I think the trade unions have been caught very flat-footed by the pandemic. I think actually mm. Sally McManus initially understood it quite well and said that she was not in favour of vaccine mandates and that she would... Oh, really? Yes, I didn't yes, know that. And that she would only okay. support it in, you know, um, you know, obvious cases. They may not actually be that obvious, but let's, you know, play along yep. with her in healthcare, aged care and the like. But she's ended up basically being come very anti uh, the anti-liberty line because she has mm. to go along with, you know, Dan the man, right? Yeah. Um, mm. But I think you'd find there are, are, are more freedom fighters in the, the, in, among unionists than you'd realise. I mean, this idea that mm. when they had the, one of those protests again outside the CFMEU office, that they were mm. some sort of, you know... Uh, right-wing... Fringy, narrow... No, 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 yeah, no, no, they no, 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 exactly. no, 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 they were just ordinary... Um, yeah. They're ordinary workers, right? And I, mm. there, was a few, there was a few clues at the time, like when, when various people were saying, oh, they're fringe right-wing elements, nothing to do with CFEMU. But if you went to online footage, well, it was pretty much a dead giveaway that they were CFMEU members because they knew down to the last dollar <laughs> what their yearly um, yearly uh, membership fees were. Yeah, you know, pretty good fake act there. Yeah, yeah. I, I drove past the CFMEU building uh, last week when I was in Melbourne, Judith, and, uh, it, and I saw it, and I just had that vision. Actually, we all saw it on on the TV screens of the fire hoses being fired out of the window on their own members I it just I got this buzz thinking wow I'm actually there <laughs> it was like being you know like the same buzz you get when you go to sort of King Wenceslas Square in in Prague or you know outside the parliament in uh, in Budapest where the you know the Russians moved in in 1956 you could just it, the I think that's going to have to be preserved. Um, preserved. Yeah. yeah, look. <laughs> like where, when you go where Kennedy was shot. Yes, yes. Simon, you've been very quiet through all this. You composing a limerick or dealing with that leak to your plumbing we talked about earlier? A bit personal, mate. <laughs> I didn't. I don't. I don't. I, I never feel. I never feel qualified to talk about um, inflation because for many, many years of my life, I confused it with inflammation. It's only. It's only. Please. It's only recently I've realised the terms are actually interchangeable because they're both about things swelling up and causing real problems. <laughs> That's but, right. um, I was I was going to give I was going to try and give us a bit of a steer to something else. I wanted to go into the country and talk about a piece you read in the Spectator. Um, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, Judith, about um, how the eco-fascists have turned their attention now on farmers. Mm. Because it's like a perfect storm for the eco-fascists because, they, as you say in your piece, they're all vegans and they have been for years anyway. Mm. But now the, the, the moon of that has, you know, has, has come into line with the moon of climate change as well and emissions. And it's mm. just brilliant for them. You know, I, I agree, Simon. I thought that was one of my better pieces. Yeah, no, they're coming for the farmers. Mm. They are coming mm. for the farmers. And it, it actually might, I hope it's not too early, but it actually inspired my... Uh, my weekly limerick, that piece. Would you like me to deliver it? Absolutely. I don't know, it, I don't know whether treat, you know this. A treat we give all to our guests, Judith. In, in lieu of payment. <laughs> For those many hundreds of thousands of uh, swill listeners who can't get access to a copy of The Spectator every week, this is a kind of an encapsulation. Uh, that, that's, I hope that's not too audacious. The Reader's me, Digest version. An, an encapsulation yeah. of Judith's piece. Though Australia's strength economic 
was for most of our past agronomic. Our farms may soon be toast thanks to folks on the coast who call themselves green. How ironic. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. That's very, very nice good. and also has the benefit of being true. <laughs> in, that, in that piece, Judith, you, you start off making, uh, reprising a bit of an old joke about economic... Economics makes astrology look reliable, I think you said. <laughs> yes. um, but, you, but, you, but you go on to talk about modelling, and I was thinking, going back to something that Nick said earlier on about people losing faith in economics. In that piece, you, as, a, as an eminent economist, a respected economist, even you seem to be uh, casting, asking questions about the whole value of modelling. I mean, it's not just, it's not just uh, economic modelling that's, that's taken a bit of it bit of a bash in recent years. In the last couple of years, the biggest uh, culprit of that has been climate modelling. We all yep. know um, we get things like mm. we get things like the, the Flannery concepts and things. Um, and, and of course, the, the, and the modelling on the spread of COVID as well. Do you think that people, mm. including economists, have lost faith in modelling, except in the sense that it applies to uh, the fashion industry? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my my. Um... My concern is this, that um, economics is uh, a discipline which comes from a small number of propositions, as a matter of fact, and, you know, common sense will always beat modelling, in my opinion. Now, I can see the role of modelling in that it particularly gives the linkages between different industries and the like, but it's one of those things, actually. It's because there's so much data around and also there's so much computer capacity that people have become obsessed with modelling. And I think you see that in climate and in, um, in epidemiology. It's kind of the, 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 the towel wagging the dog. It's like we can do it, therefore we will do it, therefore take notice. Whereas these are yeah. entirely driven by assumptions. Um, now, I mean, I don't want to... Um, I mean, you know, Angus Taylor is a friend of mine and I think he's doing a really good job in a difficult circumstance, but... I thought that modelling that he um, that he had commissioned was really silly about you know the cost of net zero twenty fifty, because it basically started from let us assume that Australia will face a penalty of one hundred and fifty basis points on the cost of capital if we don't do this. Well, having made that assumption, everything followed from that. Whereas I thought, well, let's not make that assumption. Let's let's make another assumption. So I thought that was a bit disappointing. But, but Simon, yeah, no, I think, you know, modellers might be the sort of, uh, it's a sort of veil. So people use it uh, uh, to uh, somehow show off and claim expertise when, in fact, really the people who are more interesting and worth listening to are the ones who seriously understand the concepts and can kind of work out... Uh, you know, what to think on a topic without using fancy computer general equilibrium modelling. Well, we're, we're running out of time, just, just time to break in with some exclusive modelling <laughs> from the Six O'Clock Swill to show that the audience for this podcast will increase exponentially and therefore the advertising revenue. Uh, and uh, it'll have an even greater increase, apparently, if we have Judy Sloan <laughs> on more often. So. Bad Judy. Yes, indeed. If the swill ever gets into merchandising, Judy's already given us our first T-shirt slogan. What's that? Common sense will always beat modelling. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I think that's our motto from now on. Judith, thank you very much for joining us.
on the six o'clock swirler. We hope to have you back in soon. No problem at all. Good on you, Thanks, dude. Judith. Thanks, mate. Judith Sloan. We'll have her back again. I think she's uh, good value. Tim, um, you'll be delighted to know I met this afternoon, actually, walking down Pitt Street. I was uh, A woman came up to me, introduced herself, introduced herself as Cassandra Law and said she was a great fan of your blog and the Six O'Clock Swirl. What about that? Cassandra is one of the best commenters at my site and has been for some time. She's a terrific uh, individual. Massively widely read. I think we might have a potential guest on the show. What are the chances of walking down Pitt Street and being recognised by a listener to the Six O'Clock Swirl? About 90%. I would say, yeah, quite high, quite high. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't leave the house much these days because of... It's like it's like the Beatles, you know. If I walk out, it's all the screaming and people throwing undergarments at me. You know, it'd, it'd be better if they weren't tradies, but that's still OK. <laughs> Do you think if you took the fake beard off, her name is Nadia. Oh, no, sorry, you mean the actual beard. Sorry, 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 I'm with you. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Look, um, I, I'm willing to take the criticism. We talked about work earlier, and it was a very mm. male-dominated conversation. I think we should oh, branch this so. up. Woke ladies, Tim. Well, these are more your climate chillers. You'll remember the great success of... Uh, Zali Stegel in the last election. By success, I mean she actually won. You know, she, she took over the seat from uh, Tony Abbott. No, not much success in the after, after afterwards. I don't think she's done a certain like anything except from um, you know whine from time to time about climate. Well, she's she's starting a horrible, horrible trend of rich climate ladies. So we've got Zoe Daniels, a three-decade ABC foreign correspondent is running in the Melbourne seat of Goldstein against Tim Wilson. A good conservative, I, I assume, former ABC correspondent. Oh, yeah, massively, yeah. Now, her, the, the highlight of her ABC career for mine was when she was based in Washington. And when Donald Trump was elected, <laughs> Zoe Daniels interviewed her young children. I think they were eight and ten at the time. Her own children. She interviewed them, and, and, she's like, and the kids were like, "Oh, I'm so scared. He's gonna. If you're a Mexican or anything like that, you're going to be thrown out of the country." And like, mm. <laughs> yep, little Aki makes a good point, and you know, so so does Sarah or whatever her stupid name is. Anyway, they, this ran. This is like when you're a foreign correspondent. Generally, you want to bring the experience of people in the area that you're covering to your Australian audience. Yeah. Well, Zoe as a, as didn't a, even uh, leave her house. She just like put a microphone in front of the kids. It's pretty bad. I mean, I I was a foreign correspondent for three years, as, as you know, and I I mean, I wish you'd think it was pretty low rent to quote your taxi driver. Oh yeah, that's that's the classic. We all did it. We all did the it. The classic move. Yeah, <laughs> I I you can, there's ways you can describe them as small business people or something like that. That's right. Transport entrepreneur. The beautiful thing about being a foreign correspondent in Asia, as I was, you know, the taxi driver would speak Thai or Cambodian or Khmer <laughs> yeah. or something. So yeah. you could loosely translate what you thought they were struggling to say <laughs> and make it anything, you know. <laughs> but your own kids, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm, you're shattering my illusions, guys. I had such faith. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we've also got a, another another up-and-coming Zali, and sh- this one might even out Zali Zali herself. Allegra Spender, Carla Zampatti's daughter, is running as an independent in Wentworth, again on the climate issue. All, everything, it's all about climate with these people. And she, they all say the same things. It's, it's like they've been handed some sort of climate lady script. It's like, oh... <laughs> You know, incredibly, incredibly upset seeing how poor Scott Morrison, how poorly he performed in uh, at COP twenty six in in Scotland. Oh, very distressed. Like, the, but these these are the only people who actually watch that. I think in Australia. I don't live in Zali's electorate, but I live close to it. I'd just like to see her do something about the traffic on the military road. It's got worse since she's been there. And you try and get a parking spot outside Dan Murphy's on a Saturday morning. You know, she's fixed none of that stuff. Her mind is on bigger things, mate. You've got to give her a break. She's trying to adjust the planet's temperature. She's trying to save the planet. Yeah. She's to save and here are you fussing over whether you can get your morning ration of bourbon. I think it's a, it's a, it's a bit selfish of you, frankly. And what are you doing? Like, and if she's so big on climate, by the way, why why is there more traffic? With your, with your Jeep Cherokee. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. People rampaging around in free cars. You know how much petrol you're using up there? I mean, you know... I do. Four, four, 14 litres for 100 kilometres. That's how much I'm using. <laughs> wow, that's that's handy. Well, you know, now, your sentence will be calculated based on those numbers. You're in a lot of trouble, Nick. I've got a Kia Picanto. It uses so little petrol, I'm starting to think it's actually a, a laminated moped. <laughs> <laughs> you can... Would you like to? Would you like us to fill up your car, sir? Would you like just like an oily rag? <laughs> uh, look, uh, I think we're nearing the end of our allotted span on this podcast. But Tim, um, you you managed to waste a great deal of my time this week by sending me a wonderful <laughs> little app, uh, which allows you to go anywhere in the world, pick a location, and and tune into all the radio stations that you can pick up at that place on Earth. Um, we, we should it's put it. It's fantastic. A, yeah, we'll put a link up uh, mm. wherever we put things, mm. or you can just look at my blog and find the uh, the post where it uh, where I, I, I talked about. It's actually it's not an app, is it? It's a, it's a site, an old fashioned site. site. It? Yeah, and, and um, it's, which are your uh, favourite radio stations from around the world, Tim? You've discovered. I've just been bouncing around. I found a couple in the south south of the US. There was there was a great talk show, a talk station in Slidell, Louisiana. It broadcast into New Orleans. And one of the main draws on that for me is the advertising, which is unlike any advertising. You'll enjoy this, Simon. So you listen to a show, and it's you know it's a fairly straightforward but you know engaging talk show. They cut to an ad, and the ad ad begins. Have you ever dreamed of converting your Ruger or Glock or Remington handgun into a semi-automatic? <laughs> well, your dreams have come true, patriot. <laughs> you know, like. All of your reloading blues are gone with the new Widget 5000. Delivered to your door. And I'm like, wow. I, want I don't even know what they're talking about, really. But it sounds great. And then, it, then, it, then, then a few minutes later, there'll be a talkback caller who'll be just chatting away and will just say out of you know, the issue he's calling up. He's like, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about getting the silencer for my AR-15 or, or maybe for all of them. 
No, what? <laughs> <laughs> and the other really good station, and this this one is is terrific. It's a brilliant musical resource. There's a station in Memphis called Radio Billy. A bit of a clue in the name. It's a rockabilly station. Radio Billy. My God, it's good. You can play that all day. That's just terrific. Uh-huh. And the one in Estonia you mentioned. Oh, yes, there's a bird noises channel in Estonia. They're big <laughs> on bird noises. I mentioned this to a friend of mine. He said that there was a short-lived digital station in Australia that, you know, for purposes of a re- people want to relax listening to sweet bird sounds. But its um, its promotional line was all the greatest bird sounds from the 70s, 80s and 90s. <laughs> <laughs> We love radio here, that uh, great 20th century predecessor of the wonderful thing we now call podcasts. So if you like this podcast, Six Clocks Will, please give us five stars on iTunes and share it with all your friends. Tell us what wonderful people we are. Uh, Email us at nick at radiobwc.com. You can go to our website, radiobwc.com. And tune in again next week for another wonderful edition of the Six O'Clock Squirrel with me, Nick Cater, Tim Blair and Simon Collins. Cada vez que pienso en ti, me siente como el cielo, no puedo dejar de pensiente. Cada vez que pienso en ti, me siente como el cielo, no puedo dejar de pensiente. Yeah.